Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's September 28th, 1995, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. He was shot in the head at least twice, married seven times, and had at least three religious conversions. And it was today in history that French mercenary Bob Dinar launched his fourth and final attempt to take control of the Comoros Islands with his own private army. And this was him coming out of retirement, really. He was a hobbling 60-something when he landed on this day on the beach with 30 soldiers in rubber dinghies and deposed the president... So Comoros is three islands which together make up Africa's third smallest country. They have around 800,000 people and they're not very well off people. A good percentage of their trade, interestingly, comes from dismantling and recycling old, frequently toxic decommissioned ships. So this is a place with not many industries. How do they put that on their national flag? Right. We're known for our toxic ship recycling. <laughs> yeah. So the islands were actually French until July 1975, when Ahmed Abdullah became the country's first president of the newly independent Comoros. But not for very long. He was actually overthrown in August. And so began one of the most bizarre series of coups and counter-coups in modern history. Yes, yeah, since gaining its independence from France in 1975, the Comoros Islands have experienced more than 20 coups or attempted coups and several assassinations of their heads of state. And this first one was one of Dinar's. It was his first attempt to seize power. He deposed Abdullah just shy of a month after the islands got their independence. And three years after this, Dinar's second Comoros coup was to restore Abdullah, the man that he had deposed mm. three years earlier. OK, so who is Bob Dinar? I mean, potted history. This is an incredible CV. He joined the French Navy in his late teens, just a normal French dude, right? Was sent to Vietnam, so were lots of people. Then he joined the French police in Morocco, but by 1956 was accused of involvement in a plot to kill France's Prime Minister and sentenced to a year in jail. <laughs> that one really yes, comes well, out of the blue. He yeah, doesn't seem the like, type. Oh, okay. Oh, whoa, okay Handbrake yeah, turn now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then weirdly, when he came out of jail, briefly sold kitchen appliances, which... It's just a fabulously mundane detail before you get to what he did next. Training forces in Katanga to secede from Congo, then fighting in Yemen. So that now he's like a, like a professional mercenary. There was Biafra's war to break away from Nigeria. And then in the 70s and the 80s, he was active in Benin, Chad and Angola when he said he'd collaborated with the CIA. So he really was like for hire, French, but, you know, he can dial that up or down depending on the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that he was able to spend so much of his life fermenting unrest in former French colonies in Africa is because of this 
policy called France-Afrique, which is a term kind of like the Commonwealth, describing the ties between France and its former colonies. And much like the Commonwealth, it ranges from just a sort of generalised sense of goodwill to outright interference, depending on the era and the agenda. So what had happened was that immediately after World War II, France had spent eight years fighting an ultimately futile war to retain control of Indochina, modern-day Vietnam, and they wanted to avoid a similar scenario in Africa and also make sure that newly independent African states would not fall under the Soviet sphere of influence. So what they did was they stayed as intertwined as possible. And this involved not only informal relationships between French and African power brokers, which created this atmosphere where corruption and dodgy dealing could flourish, but also French military advisors, in quotation marks, to help develop these newly independent state armies. And in practice, this just meant that France had a built-in military presence across the continent, which they could use however they wanted. And they did. France would ultimately stage more than 40 military interventions in its form possessions, averaging once a year from the 1960s to the mid-1990s. And these mercenary armies were a huge part of that, even though they weren't technically part of the French army and the French government did not recognise them. Behind the scenes, they were often in talks with Western governments. Yeah, it was quite sort of ahead of its time because prior to this, you did have soldiers of fortune and mercenaries who would just go to the highest bidder. But this was the first time that we were really starting to see the emergence of what's now known as contractors, you know, the kind of Mm. blackwaters or the triple canopies of today or the little green men that went into Crimea on behalf of Russia, you know, these kind of plausibly deniable forces that are almost definitely that let's face it they are definitely being funded by the CIA or the or the FSB or whoever it is they're there to work on behalf of the state in question but in a way that they can ultimately shrug off and say that they weren't connected to and so throughout his career Denar was likely to have been being sponsored by France at various points as well as other nation states that could use his services including the Comoros But, you know, both sides of the Comoros, each time there was a new person who fancied a coup, they seemed to come straight to Denau because I guess he knew the territory. And what was in it for him, as well as the money, is there was power available as well. So as you said, Arian, in in the uh, Comoros, he organised a coup against President Abdullah. And when he reinstated him, that was on the condition that he had the job title of head of the presidential guard, which de facto means leader in this circumstances. Like, he had weakened the leader and then brought him back and said, here he is, I'm just going to (laughs) sit next to him, nothing to see here. Well, the fascinating thing about that interim period was that he was hired in 1976 by Ali Soli, who wanted to go kick uh, Abdullah out. And so he found Denar uh, just sort of kicking around in Paris, having been shot in the head. And Soli brings him back and he then overthrows Abdullah. Abdullah goes to Paris and he then sort of um, kicks his heels up for a little bit, waiting for his turn to get Denar back on his side. But interestingly, Soli, he He held on for two years and survived four attempted coups, but he was an absolutely appalling leader, not least because he was A, an alcoholic, and B, often took strategic advice from his witch doctor. The witch doctor told him that he would be killed by a white man with a black dog, and his response to that was to order his men to kill all the dogs on the island, (laughs) which was obviously going to be, well, I suppose so, but but also very, very hard. Yeah, and precisely because of this prediction, when Denar entered 
entered the presidential palace to throw Soli out and replace him with Abdullah. Basically, Abdullah had come to Denar and said, can you please do the same yeah. thing you did to me, to this guy? So great. He entered the presidential palace where he found Soli in bed with two young women. And apparently he turned to Denar and said, I should have known it would be you. So Soli was then seized. And 16 days later, he was helpfully shot while trying to escape. He was also able, of course, once in a position of power to do things that other proper leaders, of course, couldn't do things that were unpalatable. So one of the things that he did during this period is he moved Comoros diplomatically closer to apartheid South Africa. So, for example, using Air Comoros to fly to places where South African airlines had been prohibited, which Mm. you can imagine would be worth some cash backdoors, right? Yeah, right. He was also receiving a salary of more than $3 million a year, and he built a luxurious estate of 1,800 acres, apparently. He married a hotel receptionist, who by this stage was his sixth wife, and had eight children. He converted to Islam, or at least claimed to convert to Islam. And by 1989... It was really because rumours began to swirl that Denar was going to be ousted by Abdullah, who had probably by this stage tired of this guy, like, leeching off the state and also pretty much living as the de facto leader, that he got involved in a coup that took place on November the 26th, when the president was shot and killed in his bedroom. So that takes us to this time where he turns up again for one last bite of the cherry, like in a sort of cop movie. (laughs) One final case. (laughs) I'm going to give it one more go. And it lasted for a week. So the French army intervened after a week of the prime minister hiding in the French embassy and the president having fled. And they did have to go through the uh, motions of arresting him. Yeah, by the time it reached the courts, he never served time because he had been diagnosed with dementia. By this point, he'd already been tried and cleared by a French court of his involvement in the third coup. And he received a suspended sentence in 1993 for his role in a coup in Benin back in 1977. So you can see how these incredibly lengthy delayed trials that end with basically a slap on the wrist might imply that there had been some tacit support by the French state that they may not have wanted to come to light. He died in 2007. And one thing I think that really shows how far we've moved on as a society in that relatively short time is how many of the obituaries describe him as yes. <laughs> I mean, I suppose the details of his life are extraordinary. So you can kind of report them, particularly from a Western perspective, I suppose we've done, with a smile on your face. But it does represent just appalling ethics and the <laughs> maltreatment of an African nation, which they're hopeless to avoid. Yeah. And the kind of self-aggrandizement that he went in for being reported almost straight. You know, he called himself a pirate. Uh, He said, uh, the Corsairs in France would receive written permission from the king to attack foreign ships. I didn't have such permission, but I had passports given to me by the intelligence services. Also, the loop-de-loops of personal justification he must have gone through. There was a moment where he was talking about the uh, effective assassination of one of the many presidents who he ousted, Jafar, and he was killed when Denar was in the room. And what he said was, I was a soldier, I was never a killer. And I thought, I mean, that's a, an astonishing thing to try to tell yourself about what you've been involved in your whole life. <laughs> Tomorrow. So you sort of had a mini Charlton Heston in this little tyre garage in uh, Slough. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, part of the ACAST Creator Network.